Hello everyone, welcome to Green.io, the podcast for doers, making our digital world greener, one bite at a time. I'm your host, Gael Duez, and I invite you to meet with me a wide range of guests working in the digital tech industry to better understand and make sense of its sustainability issues and find inspiration together for the next moves to green the IT we use or the digital products we build. If you like the podcast, please rate it five stars on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite platform to spread the word to more responsible technologists like you. And now, enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. In this episode, we went to Berlin to meet Chris Adams. Where to start from with someone with a track record like Chris? Maybe we're thanking him and the trailblazers at Loco2, now Rail Europe, for enabling me to travel from Paris to Berlin by train, which should be the norm in Europe and is still a pretty big challenge. So thanks a lot for that. After Loco2, Chris helped many digital companies and he founded Product Science in 2013 and managed it for six years, helping people build better digital products for solving environmental and social problems already. Chris is now the executive director of the Green Web Foundation, which is the number one directory to check whether a host provider runs on low carbon energy and much more that he tells us about. Since 2018, he has also been a pillar of climate action tech, nicknamed CAT, a more than 6,000 members community of tech workers taking climate action together. Welcome, Chris. Thanks a lot for joining Greenier today. Thank you for having me, Gail. And first of all, I wanted to ask you, what did I forget to mention about you and your crazy life? Ah, I think the one, uh, the, the one thing I might mention is that, yes, we worked at Loco2, which is a low-carbon CO2 and low, locomotion and like, like a triple-layer pun company. But there was also another company I worked at uh, called AMI, which stands for Avoid Mass Extinction Engine. And around 2011, 2012, we basically burned through something in the region of 20 million US dollars of VC uh, funding, trying to figure out how to sell carbon accounting or put APIs on carbon calculation, just like people are doing now. And we pivoted lots and lots of times and learned lots of things. And uh, I, that was really, really helpful and informative for me for shaping my experiences about this. And if you look around, I'll add to the show, show notes, there was actually a talk all about how to green your cloud by that company back in 2009 or something like that. So people, there have been people who have been working in this field for a very, very long time. Yeah, and you're part of the trailblazer. I, I don't see any other word that will describe the work that you've been doing when most of the people were not aware of it at all. Which leads me to the question that how did you become interested in the sustainability uh, and especially the sustainability of our digital sector in the first place? Uh, did you have like some kind of haha moment? I think it actually came from basically me looking at this stuff. I mean, I was more interested in like sustainability and I suppose like things like fair trade and ethics in my mid-teens when I first read a book called No Logo by Naomi Klein. And mm-hmm. uh, that kind of gave me helped me kind of make sense of the whole kind of story of globalization and how things are changing on this. And then I kind of took some of those values with me, I think, all through university. And that, in, and I thought, well, if I'm going to be doing anything with computers, it would make sense for me to think about where the energy is coming from. I mean, it's got to come from somewhere, right? And uh, from there, I ended up basically getting more and more interested in this. And it's just been a kind of recurring theme. So when I did graduate from university, I mean, I was environment officer in my student union. And then when I graduated, I 
set up a company with a friend of mine and we said we're only going to work on sustainable related projects and they will have to all be, all be open source and uh, that kind of like that's been a kind of theme all the way through and I'll be honest when I I think I might have left university I think I might have gone maybe it was wiser to join a larger organization first because we did a bunch of that but we also learned a lot about um, making commitments uh, like uh, delivering on time managing budgets all this stuff like that we learned a lot of that the hard way but it's basically how I kind of got into it. And I've ended up basically pursuing projects largely based on, I guess, the direction or the problem they're looking to solve uh, primarily. And then secondarily, the kind of skill sets or things I might be using. And this is partly why I think one thing we spoke about before was this idea of, well, am I a product person? Am I a tech person? There's a whole bunch there that we could talk about. So if I had to describe you, I would say like a self-trained generalist technologist with a knack yeah. for sustainability. Yeah, yeah basically. <laughs> How does it work? That's good enough, I think. Yeah. And so let's let's talk about green hosting first. Last month, I shared a little survey in my close network to get insights on which pain points they experience on the daily journey towards sustainability. And the top pain points were the following. Two of them were very, very similar to the ones we discussed with Elizabeth last month that were raised by product managers and CPO, which are the C-level deadlock, how to convince my CTO, my CEO that green hosting matters, how do I go beyond best green IT is no more IT issue, which is a bit of a struggle when you're a head of ops, and raising awareness at the number two, how do I raise awareness in my organization, when can I switch from being just an advocate to someone starting to take actions. Do you have any feedbacks or insight that you'd like to share regarding these two pain points? Yeah, I think um, one thing that you can think about this, it would be that, uh, let's say you're a technologist, and I've written a blog post about this, is like the three levers you might have if you want to do something on climate, right? I, there's one thing that you might be familiar with, which is basically consumption. So this is the idea that you might want to make things more efficient, right? But another option might be changing the intensity of the actual infrastructure you use, right? So like the carbon intensity. So for it, you might be able to reduce the number of compute cycles or the machines you're running, right? But another way to achieve some greater sustainability a lot of the time will basically be to make sure those machines are running on much, much greener energy. So uh, that would be one of the arguments I would make. And in many cases, the, in the year 2022, because we have seen the cost of renewable energy fall so much, it's getting a lot easier to buy green hosting. In many ways, it's a real kind of no-brainer uh, if you are going to look at a relatively no-regrets option to do this kind of stuff. So I think that you can, you can make an economic argument to basically say in the long run, it'll be cheaper. Uh, you can make an argument that it's going to be better for retaining staff or having people who actually feel good about what they're doing. And in many ways, it's probably going to be one of the most measurable changes you do have available to you. Now that we have increasing numbers of tools like, say, Amazon's dashboards or Cloud Carbon Footprint's dashboards showing you the carbon intensity of a particular compute job. So if you can see, if you have control over where you might choose to run a computing job, then... And one option basically you know causes some avoidable harm and the other option doesn't cause that avoidable harm, then it does feel like it would make sense to do, to ch I think most, most responsible engineers, if they knew that they had an option there, they would choose to, to go for the greener, less harmful option if they had it available to them. So I think that's one way that you can actually talk about it really. So it's like retention to kind of keep staff happy. And the other one is basically, it's in many cases, there's a cost, there's a cost argument for this stuff. 
And I think that we might be able to talk about later on how some organizations are actually taking advantage of how the cost of renewable energy has fallen by something like 90% over the last 10 years to come with entirely new business models and entirely new services to allow you to kind of essentially capture some of those savings that would otherwise not be passed on to you to pay from other cloud providers. Just to sum it up, it will be, it's a no-brainer when it comes to the financial perspective. It will help retain your talents in this tense job market where tech people are in high demand. Yeah. And eventually, this is good for the planet. But that would not be the number one argument. Because if you're a CTO or a CEO, people haven't directly hired you to make the planet better, right? And I feel like you could lead with that argument, but a lot of the time, if you can find a way to talk about how the benefits land somewhere inside your organizational boundary, then you're going to have a lot more success. And there are ways to actually have that. And uh, basically, if you think about how hard it is to find people, that's a really, really, if you're able to make it easier for you to retain some of your best people, that's a way of a, of a benefit staying within, within an organization. Or if you're able to get people to, to join your company because they see that you're really showing leadership in this, then again, that's benefits landing inside your company. So I think it's important to know how to make this argument to people who are actually decision makers or budget holders a lot of the time. And there's also, I forgot one other really, really crucial one now. I mean, basically regulation is forcing this stuff now. Like in the UK, for example, there are legal requirements for organizations to, just within public sector, to show they're achieving reductions year on year um, in, in their emissions, right? And you see the same thing happening with investors now who basically say, you need to show me that you are reducing your emissions across all of your, uh, across your entire organization. Otherwise, I won't provide you with the same access to capital and I'm going to be less keen to invest in you because I see you as a risk compared to other, other organizations. So there's actually a regulatory reason for this uh, that you might want to kind of be aware of or get ahead of so that you, it doesn't come up, come up as a nasty shock later on. So regulation, external pressure, winning the talent war, and a no-brainer when it comes to the financial perspective. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And some questions were more focused on the specific ops and infrastructure topics. The first one being what I would call the informational maze. How do I get the right level of information? How can I have a hosting provider blasting that it runs on renewable energy when we know that the local grid is coal-powered? How would you deal with this lack of access to fully transparent information? So this is actually one thing that is a ongoing struggle. And this is actually why I joined the Green Web Foundation in the first place, because I was looking around to find some services that I both was comfortable using because they provided a good user experience or they were secure enough or they worked quickly and had a convincing track record on sustainability. One of the reasons I've joined the Greenwood Foundation is because they were working to create some transparency around this stuff. And uh, if you actually start looking into this, you'll realize that it's pretty much a fractal of complexity in that, yes, you might be, say, if, if a company is saying they're running on green power, then is that because they're running, say, their on-site solar? or like or, or on-site renewables, because there are examples of companies that do do that. You can basically choose to run infrastructure in, say, Switzerland, for example, in a disused factory that's been refitted with servers that runs on a run-of-the-river hydropower and with the other 1% that, so with 99% power coming from hydro and 1% coming from, say, solar. You can have those options, but if you do that, then you may be trading off 
the fact that you are used to having lots of convenient and mature services from other places who might be taking other approaches to say, well, we've put, we've purchased offsets or we've purchased a set of green energy credits, for example, uh, to basically say that what was kind of carbon fossil powered grids is now considered green. And this is basically because in order to actually delve, you know, plumb the depths of look into this, you need to un- start to understand quite a lot of energy policy. And for most people, it's, they don't have the time to do something like an MSC in this stuff. And like when I was initially getting into this, when I spoke to some people who work at energy companies, I was like, wow, this is really complicated. Do I need to do an MSC? And they were like, yeah, that's what I did. And I feel like it's, this is because we don't really have this transparency right now. I think there are tools and there are organizations making it easier to understand. So you do have some kind of metrics for this. So the Green Software Foundation is one example, but so is the Sustainable Digital Infrastructure Alliance. I think they're doing some really, really good work to make it easier and provide guidance on what kind of metrics to track so that you know that you're having some kind of impact. But it's an extremely complicated discussion, basically. And it's really not helped by the fact that a lot of the time, the transparency is not there at multiple levels. So that as a responsible technologist, it's, it can often be very difficult for you to have like a date to take a data informed decision, basically. And as someone calling the shots when it comes to infrastructure and hosting, whether I'm a CTO, a head of ops or a DevOps, why should I get interested in the Green Web Foundation tools? How could they help me navigate the informational maze? Okay, I would say, and this is one thing that we're working on doing, is to make it easier to basically green your stack. All right, so there'll be, there's, you will be, be able to achieve some progress by thinking about, say, the efficiency of what you do and basically doing things like turn off computers or make architectural decisions so that you're not wasting as much compute. But you're never going to efficiency your way to zero. You will need to find another way to actually account for the unavoidable amounts of compute to meet the demands that you are that are necessary for you to provide whatever service you're running. And at that point, yeah, you will need to be looking at say things like green hosting. But if you are looking for that, I think there are things you you might want to look at are some tools which do make this easy to see. And the thing and the, there are some metrics you can look for now. There are things like the carbon intensity of the electricity that an organ that a uh, that, that various providers have. Or you might look at things like, say, the, for want of a better word, coverage, like how much of their energy uh, that they're using each year is, is matched with renewable energy, for example. So when most organizations say they're running on green energy, what they're basically saying is we can point to green generation over a year that matches the amount of energy that we've used for our servers over that year. And that that's not that and and there there be there are various ways that you can achieve that, for example. But there are some organisations now which are being quite a bit more aggressive on this. So Google and Microsoft they're increasingly talking about how they match things on an hourly basis. So they'll basically say for every hour of power that we're using, we are matching that power with green energy, and that might be from say on-site solar or on-site wind or things like that, or it might be them being able to point to the fact that they have invested in green energy generation, which is generating power at the same time as they are using so that when they are, so they can make a reasonable claim to say, for example, at night, that the servers they're using that are running at night are being powered by wind power running at night. And like, this is a difference from the annual approach because on an annual basis, you're taking an average over the entire year. It may be that that energy might have, 
all come from, say, solar during the day, for example. But if your servers are running at night, I think it's a different. It's it's a much harder. It's it's a much bigger claim to make to basically say, well, because I've paid for a bunch of solar panels to be deployed uh, over here, then my, my 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 compute at night is is being matched by that. That's a different thing, and that's something we might touch on a little bit later because there are now increasingly standards and things to kind of track this or make it easier to be much clearer about where the energy is coming from. And do you make this distinction in the repository maintained by the Green Web Foundation? This is the thing we're looking to move towards, actually. So the way that we present it, we basically say that if you want to have a green service or a green site, we say you need to demonstrate steps you are taking to either avoid, reduce, or offset the greenhouse greenhouse gas emissions caused by the electricity you're using to run that service. We ask that to be on a yearly basis right now because basically what I spoke to you about this kind of hourly example, right? There are even Google, even Microsoft, with who are basically like trillion-dollar companies with essentially infinite access to capital. They've said we're not. We reckon that we'll be able to match all of our electricity usage on an hourly basis by 2030. But for the most part, most organisations, uh, they, they they might be an annual basis, and they are. And when people are in our directory, we've basically asked them for to provide evidence that they've shown that they're matching this on a, on a, on, a, on a yearly basis. But the thing we would like to do, and the, the thing we're really pushing for, is people to show uh, to move to showing evidence about how they how much they match on an hourly basis because we feel that's actually a much more in line with what most people expect when they think about green energy and there are ways that you can do that now by change by, by, by matching the amount of power you use based on the kind of amount of green energy that's on the grid or like in the case of say folks in switzerland for example literally running your infrastructure on things like run of the river hydro which will run all the time so that's the kind of stuff that we do do and it might be worth saying that different parts of the world have different ways of counting energy as green. And in, while in, say, Europe, for example, you may be able to choose a green provider, there are certain parts of the world where the energy market is structured so that you literally cannot choose a different energy provider. You have, there is a monopoly, and the best you can do is maybe purchase some green energy credit or agree to use some other financial instrument. It's really, really difficult. And this is why we say we have this kind of relatively broad statement simply because the kind of structures of all these markets is such that you can't basically just say oh we, we, we have to have uh, we're only going to accept one form of energy basically which make the work of the green web foundation so important now going back to the survey another question was what is really the true impact does this really matter compared to other areas where i could invest energy to make things greener and it kind of makes sense when you see the complexity of the energy market as you just describe it, don't you think? So I think it very much depends on. So just like you've, like just like your previous uh, guests have said, you need to establish a baseline to see what the changes would be. So France, for example, France because it actually has very very low carbon grid. It may be that say really really focusing on the greenest possible hosting is going to have a relatively small increase compared to, say, if you are hosting something in Poland, which has a very, very kind of coal-heavy grid, for example. So in those kind of scenarios, you'd, you'd want to really see where you are now and then see what steps you might take. So there is actually a word for this, and there's a really lovely blog post from the Electricity Map blog recently talking about this, which they refer to as like emissionality. It's basically 
will this change result in lower emissions for my operations, for example? And in many cases, that's one thing that you need to take into account here. So if you are running things in France already, the, 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 the changes brought about, assuming you actually have all nuclear power working right now in France, for example, because uh, isn't that, that isn't always the case, right? It may be that the changes you make to kind of use a green provider within France won't be that large if you, than if you were in another, in another, working with another provider, for example. And it may be, that, like, it may be something like if you are running in, say, a significant chunk of your infrastructure in maybe the East data center, AWS East in, uh, in, in America, for example, that's quite a coal-heavy grid. It may be that you might want to switch to the AWS West because it's going to be a lower carbon thing, a low, lower carbon set amount of compute there because the energy is greener largely because it's coming from things like hydroelectric electricity and stuff like that. So you need you need to know where you are first in order for you to know what your steps might be. But increasingly, that's getting a lot easier because this data is increasingly available. There are companies like there are organisations like Ember which basically give you the carbon intensity for various parts of the world. And there are tools which actually incorporate this so that you can track this, like Cloud Carbon Footprint, for example, if you're a CTO. Is Cloud Carbon Footprint a tool which is provided by the Green Web Foundation as well, or is it a different initiative? So Cloud Carbon Footprint was a project that ThoughtWorks initially invested a bunch of time working in to build an open source tool, because one thing they found was that just like the discussions we're having here, people who are responsible for the infrastructure don't really have a kind of, don't know too much about what tools are on there. And like we did a project back in 2018, which was called Amazon Green Cost Explorer, which basically told you which infrastructure, which were the green regions when you're uh, uh, that are in your car, in your cloud bill. So it would work by you would kind of give it a token, uh, like a, a like it's a I am credit, an I, I am a set of credentials, and it would basically say this much of your compute is running in green regions and this much is running in green regions which are, where there is no no evidence of, of action taking place. And you can think of Cloud Carbon Footprint as basically taking this idea of, well, can I get information from my usage patterns and can I come up with some action or benefits? That's essentially what, what uh, Cloud Carbon Footprint was. And we've contributed some small bits of code to it, but the thing that we are probably most the thing that I'm expecting us to be doing with Cloud Carbon Footprint this year is probably design a, is contribute a, a way for people who are not currently the big three cloud providers to uh, share this information. Because if you are using Microsoft's Azure, if you're using Google Cloud Platform, or if you're using uh, Amazon uh, AWS, then you can get these numbers. But there are groups who obviously are not just using this stuff. So if you might be using DigitalOcean or you might be using Scaleway or you might be using Hetzner, you might want to have these numbers too. And once you figure out what numbers are actually being exposed from the kind of metrics and usage and the usage data or, or even like the billing APIs from these providers, it's totally possible to build that yourself so that you can get a kind of multi-cloud view of all of the actual infrastructure you're running so you can then start optimizing for carbon. So, we talked a lot about energy consumption and the holy grail to have it on an hourly basis, if not real time. But what about the other environmental costs of running a data center? Do you believe that in the near future we will be able to incorporate the embedded carbon of a server, for instance? 
or its impact during the manufacturing phase on resource exhaustion. Mm. The idea being to measure all the savings made when we use our equipment longer and then to take action to actually make them last longer. I think we are, the extent to which we can actually get there is very much governed by the extent by which organizations are prepared to share this information about how long they hold on to the servers, how long they're used, or any of these things here. Because like you're, you're, you are correctly identified, there is a huge amount of energy that does go into turning sand into silicon, into like silicon chips, for example. And if you, once you've done that, the thing you probably want to do is amortize that embedded carbon cost over, uh, over the lifetime of the server to make it last as long as possible. But a lot of the time, the assumptions we might make, which say, well, a server's obviously going to be around for maybe five years, that's not necessarily the case. So there'll be some very, very large providers who might run things for much, much shorter periods of time. And uh, this is one thing that it's been really difficult to find numbers on. And uh, you can basically see th- there are... This is actually one of the things that we really struggle with and why I'm really glad that some tools like uh, Boa Vista's work or as I understand it, Nega Octet's work as well, is in there now. So we can actually start getting an idea about this. But the thing to bear in mind is that once you have done this, it's worth thinking about what the second life of some of these tools might actually be. So uh, I gave, there's a really, uh, good, there's an example I quite like of a company called um, IT Renew. What they do is they take end of life servers and uh, they basically build new data centers from these kinds of end of life X hyperscale servers from the companies like, say, Facebook, for example, right? These, you, how do you account for the embedded carbon there, for example? Do you allocate all the actual emissions to Facebook? Do you allocate the emissions to the second life for it? There's a whole bunch of unanswered questions that we haven't really figured out yet. And I think this is one thing that we do need to get a handle on. And I think that having some of the data really does help, but it's, it's early days. We are starting to get some of this data together. And I suspect that what we might end up having to do is basically have modeled, but modeled data to, that that can be updated uh, to basically be, be explicit about our assumptions and see if those assumptions are really matching the reality, really. Absolutely. And these model data are badly needed to truly empower ops on their sustainability journey. Mm. Speaking about it as a journey, the most popular question in the survey was actually, where do you start to analyze and to take concrete actions? What would be your advice on both? Where do you start, right? So, well, I think the thing is, it's useful to bear in mind that most of the actions, if you're looking at the consumption of power, are going to be things you want to do anyway, right? So uh, there are tools which have already been, been built which will track how much network your usage or, or how much or, or how big a page is or how much compute you've paid for, right? And if we basically take into account the fact that, yes, there's obviously a kind of, that, that the energy has to come from somewhere, just reducing the consumption will help. And uh, tools... There are, there are a bunch of tools that exist like right, right now. There are kind of plugins for things like SiteSpeed if you do stuff on the web. There are plugins now like um, Scaffondre, which is, oh, is that how you pronounce it? I've never spoken to a French person about it, actually. Scaffondre. Scaffondre, yeah, yeah. So that thing, yeah. There are tools uh, which now make it easy for you to understand 
how much energy how much energy is being used or where the energy hogs are in a, in a given system for example i would actually start with stuff like that because if you're going to make the case for this then if you're able to show that you've basically reduced the costs of something you're immediately winning some social capital for example and until people price carbon for example they you 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 might be rewarded for showing some measurable carbon uh, re- reductions but until people are pricing carbon or you've got any way of talking about that i suspect that you'll be you're more likely to be record, re- rewarded in ways if they provide a kind of co-benefit for some other thing that you already want anyway so if you want to be reducing cloud bills for example then starting there is a really is is a, is a nice way to do this or if you want to show that you're maybe make, making a website load faster or be more accessible you might start there because that would actually have both sustainability benefits in terms of opening your devices and tools i mean your services to a wider set of people but also it has a sustainability benefit in that you are no longer inducing or requiring people to have the latest and greatest equipment to actually access any service so i would probably start with the consumption stuff first and then think about things like intensity even though i run uh, even though i'm running an agency where we uh, an organization where we track things like carbon intensity basically so i would start there and then you can move to the other ones and then later on you can talk about things like say well now that we've uh, got an idea of what our missions are and how we actually are able to manage that part then you can have some of the longer the bigger discussions about well what what product decisions do we want to focus on like what what behavior do we want to enable for example that stuff is totally relevant and probably higher leverage stuff but you kind of need need to build up some of the social capital elsewhere first especially cuz if you've been hired as a developer to build good websites which are efficient then demonstrating how you're making some websites efficient which also happens to make them greener is probably quite easy way it's quite a nice way to start introducing these ideas especially if you don't have control over a budget for example or you're not at a kind of executive level so if i wrap up everything we said about green hosting it would be and correct me if i'm wrong step number 1 make your case pushing for the three big reasons being this is an economic no brainer this will boost our employer brand and at some point it will become a compliance issue yeah then step number 2 would be start focusing on consuming less electricity which is the easiest way to kickstart once you've done this, you will move to paying attention to the energy mix for the electricity you still consume. And eventually, step number three, now that you have matured in green hosting, welcome in a more complicated word, where you would try to take into account the embedded carbon and even the e-waste, but knowing that the data and the resources you'll be using are more R&D than commonly agreed framework or referential. I think that would make sense. I mean, the thing that's kind of interesting right now is that this is actually kind of early and you probably have quite, there's scope to have quite a lot of outside leverage in this, or in this early phase later on because people haven't figured out what the, pe- there are very, very few places providing this kind of training right now and it's, it very much feels like maybe where accessibility was say 10, 15 years ago for example or even just where similar fields were where you were, where, if you're, if you, or like say blogging in the early 2000s, like, yes, this has been around for a while and people have been writing for ages, for example, but right now there is this kind of uptick in interest in, in sustainability and digital sustainability. And I feel that there's actually a chance to, yeah, kind of have quite outsized impact simply because we haven't figured out who it should be, who, who that person should be reporting to or how to actually def- even define it really. 
Yes, I agree. There is a boulevard for whoever wants to move things forward. And that's very encouraging. So thanks a lot, Chris, for being with us today. Awesome insights and feedback, especially on navigating the information maze in green hosting and how to start a more sustainable club policy. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed this, Gail. Thank you. You're welcome, literally. Next month, we will go to Bristol and meet another trailblazer in digital sustainability and a world-renowned expert in WordPress, Hannah Smith, a.k.a. Anupkan. But wait, that's actually not entirely true. We will meet Hannah next month, but we had such a great chat with Chris on the latest trends in digital sustainability, all the initiatives popping up, etc., that we decided to give you a bonus episode. So let's meet in one week for the second part of this interview. Make sure to subscribe to our mailing list or on your favorite podcast platform not to miss the release. And that's it. Thank you all for listening to Green IO. If you have liked this episode, please share it on social media or with any friends or colleagues who would enjoy it or learn from it. Green IO being a non-profit podcast, our dear listeners are our true communication power. And you are our card as well, so feel free to share with me your ID for new guests who want to make our digital world greener, one bite at a time.